Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen Detrolio Coakley. Today, we bring you a conversation between Juan Hernandez and myself on teaching Greek for Spanish speakers. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. My name is Stephen Detrolio Coakley, and this is the HTI Open Plaza podcast. I have uh, the joy of welcome, welcoming Juan Hernandez Jr., who is professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Bethel University in Minnesota. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. We're so glad to he- uh, have you here. Uh, in talking in the elevator, we both went to the same undergraduate. Mm-hmm. What did you study there? Uh, pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And now you teach? Uh, biblical studies biblical at uh, studies. Bethel University. Yep. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and how that kind of fell into place for you. Okay, so um, I was born in uh, Camden, New Jersey. Uh, my parents are from Puerto Rico, and so we grew up bilingual, bicultural. If you know anything about Camden, it is uh, a ghetto, and uh, it's always top five in terms of either violence or poverty. Uh, my dad was uh, a middle school teacher all his life. My mom worked in a cheesesteak uh, restaurant and uh, Philly cheesesteaks, right? The best uh, cheesesteaks. Yeah, and you know, we were Catholic. Uh, my whole family from uh, Puerto Rico is pretty much Catholic. We grew up Catholic. Uh, I was even a monaguillo, an altar boy for a little mm-hmm. bit. Did a little stint in Catholic school. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the trajectory into academia was not one that I would have uh, thought I'd ever be in. I actually wanted to be a Marine. That was my goal. I liked the Marine uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it offered some order and aesthetics in a place that was awfully, you know, uncertain and violent. Sure. You know, We grew up in a good family. Um, you know, I have no complaints about that. Uh, but uh, it wasn't until I had this uh, uncle. Uh, he was married to my dad's sister. Uh, so he was uncle by marriage, who was Pentecostal. And uh, he, you know, was just very excited about his faith and about the scriptures. And uh, he was so enthusiastic, it was infectious. And so um, we started to uh, spend time with him. And, you know, they're close to our families. Uh, They started inviting us to church, myself, my sister, and so forth. And my parents had no objections. They were Catholic, but, you know, as long as uh, you're off the streets is great. And that's basically their idea. And it was there where I first developed kind of a, a... what I would call a passion and a love for the scriptures. Um, I would see him memorizing scripture and being able to recite it, you know, and um, I started to do the same thing. Well, there, um, one thing led to the other. I I started going to a Pentecostal church, and uh, this was during my teen years, 15, 16, 17, 18, and that is probably where the earliest signs of the life of the mind occurred, ironically in the Pentecostal church, because um, generally uh, the mantra is, uh, el espíritu es el que da vida, la, la letra mata, you know, they don't like you reading too much, exactly. it's a little dangerous, it's subversive, or you're dead spiritually, yeah. uh, but I was just so excited, little did I know that what I had been falling in love with actually was a love for words and phrases and stories mm-hmm. and narratives, that that's really what was happening, I, but to me it was just all God Bible kind of thing. Well, um, our denomination, Assemblies of God, had an unaccredited bilingual Bible college in the Catskills in Swan Lake, New York. Oh, wow. And at this time, I was 17 or 18, and um, you know you know how it is in Pentecostal churches. They have you preach and teach right away. Yeah. Um, our pastor suggested, you know, 
with all your enthusiasm and interest, would you be interested in Bible college? We pay for it. And I was like, well, sh- sure, why not? Um, it was cheap. It was $600 a semester. Wow. There were only 25 students. That's amazing. Um, the classes were in Spanish and English. I, I mean, I was bilingual, no problem, but there were some who, you know, were, were more migrants and, and didn't have much um, ease with the English. Long story short, my first Greek class in Spanish was there. Wow. As first exposure to Greek was in the Catskill, Swan Lake, New York. The people who started that school uh, were from Gordon-Conwell, mm-hmm. uh, Puerto Rican, and uh, they did such a stellar job with the curriculum that Nyack uh, College and Valley Forge Christian College ex- would accept all of our credits. So I went wow. three years to an unaccredited Bible college, went off into Valley Forge, and from there one thing led to the other, and the expansion started happening. I went from Valley Forge Christian College, where I took a second-year Greek and kept up with New Testament, to Westminster Theological Seminary mm-hmm. in Philadelphia uh, for a year, and then I transferred over to Gordon-Conwell, where I did an MDiv and a THM. Uh, so by then you kind of had figured out, this is something I want to do. Absolutely. I, the, the fascinating thing to, for me was that as I, as I grew in terms of uh, deepening my understanding and knowledge and acquisition of languages, I was also very, um, very narrow in terms of what I would study. Like there was this clear idea in my head that there are some things that are sacred and there are some things that are profane. Mm-hmm. So anything that would have to do with the Bible or theology, I'd invest all the time in the world. If it had to do with anything beyond that, I was utterly disinterested. Yeah. Um, along the way, I had a mentor who would you know, uh, constantly uh, advise me and help me and kind of give me some direction. Alvin Padilla, he was my, my first uh, teacher at uh, Spanish Eastern School of Theology. Uh, so uh, I ended up applying to PhD programs, Amazing. and uh, I got into Emory University. Emory University is one of these schools that uh, accepts only two to three people a year. And if you get in, you, you, you get a full ride with a stipend. And it was there that I started to really, really encounter the limits of my rearing and the limits of my cultural upbringing. Mm-hmm. I was all of a sudden in a pool with individuals who, to me, it seemed were bred for this kind of life. Sure. And although I came at uh, the material New Testament with you know multiple languages under my belt, exegesis, all that kind of stuff, the conversation was very broad yeah. and freewheeling and, and, and included a lot of history. And it was also obvious that the people I was engaging were readers. Mm-hmm. And I was not. Mm-hmm. I was not. And that's where I started to realize that they, they are pulling from fountains. They're drawing from fountains that I don't have access to. Yeah. So that started to be a real uphill climb and a challenge. Um, I did, I did very well uh, in the coursework, you know, I, I tend to try to overachieve, but it was work. Yeah. And it wasn't until um, I hit the comprehensive exams that uh, I was kind of just in crisis because I had studied for my comprehensive exams and uh, I studied in a way that I thought would be, you know, useful and I ended up failing my comprehensive wow. exams. Everybody else apparently knew what was going on and was on the same page. And here's yeah. this guy who... You know, had you know seven, eight languages under his belt, detail-oriented, exegesis, and I, I somehow I, I misread the culture. I misread what was expected. Well, I redid them, and at that time, I decided, okay, it's either sink or swim. You know, I need to figure out how to go forward. So what I did, and, and this leads to the whole life of the mind business and the Greek and Spanish, um, I decided that my understanding of the Bible was a crutch. 
My understanding of my dependence on the scriptures was a crutch. I knew that well, but that wasn't helping me. I needed to go broader and deeper. So what I started to do, first thing I did was uh, I, I got a book on logic. And I tore through the book twice. I did all the exercises. And again, it's not that I wasn't a logical thinker throughout yeah. my life. I never applied it beyond the stuff I knew. I needed to figure out how to apply this to stuff I don't know. I felt fearful if I didn't know a topic that I could not weigh into it authoritatively. And the other thing I did is I started to read. I, what were some of the things you started reading? Well, uh, the first thing I did, there's this book called How to Read a Book yeah. uh, by Mortimer Adler. And on the back, he has kind of like the Western canon. So I said, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to, to start at the very beginning. So, you know, the platonic dialogues yeah. all the way through. And uh, that turned into a love for Penguin Classics, which I still love to this day. And um, I, so every, weekend, uh, every weekend, every oh weekend, I would spend reading these books. So during the week, I was doing stuff related to biblical studies. Weekends, I would just read, read, read. And then the logic that I had I had uh, learned, I ended up putting them on memory cards, like the categories, you know, like you know, syllogisms, hypothetical syllogism, all the categories, yeah. you know, all the the uh, faux pas that you could commit, you know, and so forth. Memorize them as if I were memorizing a language. And what it happened was it freed me all of a sudden. It felt like uh, conceptually I was looking at, you know, you go into a a, a post office and sure. you've got slots mailbox slots and everything has a place all of a sudden I had a framework mm -hmm. for putting ideas in and thinking about them so I realized now I can have a conversation with somebody maybe you're going to talk to me about safaris in Africa and the different kinds of reptiles and whatnot I know nothing but I might be able to understand okay he's making an analogy or this is a plausibility argument or here is kind of a Venn diagram similar you know like that was all starting to work and, and education within an education absolutely at a PhD level. absolutely and it gave me confidence that I, I I did not possess whenever I encountered topics I did not know now this was really useful for writing the dissertation because um, at this time and this happened very quickly and I just I, I became religious about it as zealous as I had been about the Bible I became zealous about reading and about logic and understanding and so forth I had a proposal to do a dissertation that was going to be on the Greek manuscripts of the book of Revelation it was an idea that nobody thought was a good idea uh, we didn't have what any experts. Well, because we had no experts at, at, at uh, Emory University who worked on those manuscripts. Also, to do this kind of work, you needed to have a firsthand knowledge of major German works. I mean, books. Because all of the work had been done in German, and the last major foundational work from, was from the 50s. And uh, so it, at that time, which was early 2000s, there wasn't much being written on the book of Revelation in terms of its textual history. And I was told by experts, because I had... I had emailed people in Britain, Germany, all over the world, talking about my ideas, and everybody kept saying, well, you know, one guy said, you know, Schmidt, Joseph Schmidt, German scholar from the 50s, he settled all the significant questions. Or, um, you know, who are you? You know, you get yeah. this Juan Hernandez from the U.S., yeah. you know, reaching out to Europeans about this. They're like, well, you know, wh why are you even, you know, you're not even a place where they have textual critics. Well, the wonderful thing was, and it, it helped that Emory, uh, the faculty, I mean, they're just, 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 you know, fantastic scholars. They might not have been experts, but they knew how to get experts. And what was really necessary was for me to make the case. And it turns out that that uh, time in the desert that I had spent investing in logic, investing in reader, readership, etc., um, prepared me 
to speak into why this needs to be done and to make an appealing case rhetorically uh, before people who essentially have my fate in their hands. They can say yes or no. So what was your case? Well, so I, you have to prepare like a 30-page proposal, yeah. and you present it before the entire committee, entire New Testament, and it's open to the university. And I basically laid out the history of interpretation about how at this time there, were a lot of, there was a lot of talk you know, by Bart Ehrman and others about uh, textual changes in the New Testament. And Revelation was always left out of the conversation. But of all the books in the New Testament, Revelation is the one that is the most controversial. So I reason, I said, especially well, especially if you're Pentecostal, especially, yeah, exactly. Eschatology is it. It's a big thing. And uh, so I said, you know, I basically laid out a, a hypothetical thesis or a data-driven thesis that said, look, this book has not been looked at. This manuscript tradition has not been investigated. The questions that the culture is asking today would seem to be right up Revelation's alley because Revelation had trouble getting into the canon. So uh, they ended up getting an expert to be on my committee. Uh, the guy who had developed the method that I was going to follow ended up volunteering to be on the committee as well. Um, I wrote the dissertation on three ancient manuscripts, one from the 4th century, two from the 5th century, and I ended up finding a bunch of interesting things that uh, you know, confirmed my suspicions. Well, the dissertation not only got completed, uh, it passed with distinction. Uh, it was published within uh, six months, and in two years it won an award in Germany with a stipend, and I was invited to the British Library to make a presentation uh, on it. So I went from struggling in the PhD program because I had not really fit into the academic and epistemological culture that was set up there to really grappling with those modes of discourse and then Delivering, delivering a project that, that nobody thought I had a chance. And uh, fast forward many years, Schmidt, the German guy who, whose work I used, um, you know, I graduated in 2006 from Emory University. Uh, years later, 2012, I think it's 2012, uh, I was going through Schmidt's work and I ended up finding a major error in his book. Now, this is a landmark work that everybody who does Revelation, any commentary on Revelation that is technical, just cites Schmidt. That, yeah. yeah, just cites him. I had found a major uh, dating error in his work, manuscript dating error, that threw off his history by three centuries. Wow. I mean, and, and I couldn't believe it. I started emailing people, Germans, like, hey, I think I found this. They were kind of sketchy about it. Yeah. They're like, well, you know, we need to Are see, blah, sure? blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, exactly. Well, it wasn't until this Dutch scholar got back to me and said, no, 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 Schmidt, you're not wrong. Schmidt is wrong. So I ended up publishing it, and um, the Germans, uh, you know, I presented it at SBL, uh, I, I think it was 2012 or 2013, 2012. Uh, I presented it. I got an on-the-spot invitation to go to Germany and present a more detailed version of it and it opened the doors to two three more articles on it and just uh, last year uh, myself and two other scholars one American and German published the first ever English translation book length translation of Schmidt's work oh, that's and there's a whole story that I know we don't have time yeah. for it but anyway in the meantime I graduate from Emory I go to Bethel University yeah. I teach there I've been there for 14 years after 10 years, and, and really uh, the 10 years that I'm there, I'm, I'm really just teaching, trying to get my, my bearings and doing what's required of me. I didn't really do anything with the Latino culture. Bethel, the students are upper middle class. It's largely uh, white, uh, conservative. There's in St. Paul, in Minnesota. Saint Paul Minnesota, a sprinkling of, of minorities. Prior to that, 
uh, you wouldn't know it from the story I just told you, but I had been involved in a Pentecostal church. You know, I had preaching and teaching involved in the Latino uh, culture. Once I got there, I just kind of acclimated to the situation. Well, in 2015, we had a speaker come for Spanish Heritage Month, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I thought I knew him, you know, and I said, oh, I'm going to go to the chapel to see, you know, this guy, right? And so he spoke, and, and I was really disappointed in the message, you know, because it's one of those messages where you realize the host culture is, is Anglo, so you have to kind of be uh, uh, very... Um, Self-deprecating, yeah. Code switch, self-deprecating about our culture, you know, tacos and this and that. You're really trying to curry favor. I'm a safe Latino, right? And I was just so insulted by that. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, you know, I'm a freaking professor here, and I got this clown coming in doing this stuff amongst all my students, you know. And uh, so I left chapel after that, right? An hour later, I'm walking in the halls, and I look in uh, this room. It's called the Eastland Room at, at Bethel. And there I see him sitting with the president. And the room is filled with uh, Latinos. Like, and apparently pastors had been invited to have lunch with the president and the speaker and all of that. I was not a part of that. I hadn't even gotten invited. That's partly my fault. I didn't really give off those vibes, although everybody knew it. But I was kind of, who is this guy? You know. So I went in, made a beeline, uninvited, to the president's table, to the guy. And I said to him, I know you. You don't remember me. Because he had grown up. In, on the East Coast 30 years ago. Oh, wow. And when I was in youth group, he was in youth group. I was from Jersey area. He's from the Pennsylvania area. And he's kind of looking at me like he doesn't know me and this and that. I said, no, 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 no. I said, this is your wife. This is your daughter. And this is that blonde-haired girl you guys used to hang out with. Do you remember? You know, and it's all of a sudden, everybody knew, right? Well, at that table, there was one pastor who turned out to be the best friend of my college roommate when I was in Catskills. Oh, wow. 30 years ago, and he says, hey, tu eres Juan Hernandez. Oh, yeah, amigo de Paolo. Blah, 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 blah. You know, the table erupts into Spanish. President's looking at us like, what the heck is going on here? And uh, and he even says, should I get you a plate? And I was like, no, no, no. And, and then I just left. Like, I really just wanted to kind of invade that space. Yeah. Say, I know who you are. You came over here. You know. Set the record straight. Yeah, let's set the record straight. I know you. I didn't say anything about his message, but I just said, you know, I just... just Hi, right? <laughs> and uh, about two hours later, I get an email from church uh, ministries at, at the seminary, Bethel's Connected Seminary. He was there for the um, uh, that meeting, that gathering. And he says, hey, after you left, the pastors wanted to know if you'd be interested in giving a conference. And we'd pay you and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, I, I kind of felt guilted into it. I said, well, I, I guess the time is now. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't big and bold enough to, in, you know, invade a meeting. I might as well do this. So we set it up. They said, don't expect maybe 30 people, right? And uh, when the time came for the conference, went from 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 to 90 to 120, we had 140 people sign up and show up at Bethel for a three-hour conference on the Bible. And initially, the gentleman who had invited me to do it you know, he had suggestions. You know, these are the kinds of things you could teach. And really, you know, it's well-intentioned, but it's from kind of from an Anglo perspective. You know, you need to do church administration or what have you. And I'm thinking, these people, they don't have their own buildings. They rent out of other buildings. I said, you know what? And not only that, I said, I already teach seven courses a year, and I have enough 
of a time trying to get my scholarship done, I'm not going to do anything extra. So I said, I'm going to go in and I'm going to bring in the material from the college. I'm not going to change anything. The only difference is it's going to be in Spanish and the jokes are going to be in Spanish. That's it. You know, so I went in and I, that first class was uh, on Paul and I talked about the Pauline Thanksgivings. And I went through the, the Thanksgivings in Paul and I pointed out all the Greek words. They don't know any Greek, Greek right? But you use that garnish to kind of pique their curiosity. And, and I, I said to them that first uh, day, I said, I don't, I don't care if you forget everything I say. And of course, I'm saying all of this in Spanish. I said, but I hope that you, two things come with this. First, you're inspired. Second, that you're irritated with me. Because if you're irritated with me, you're going to go back and check for yourself. Then you could come back and apologize to me. Everybody starts laughing, right? Um, conference went on from 8.30 to 12. Then we all had lunch. It's $25. You know, it's like a nominal fee. They didn't want to leave. They wouldn't let me go on break. They wanted to have another one that same afternoon. They said, when's the next one? And this was a one-off as far yeah. as I was concerned. So there was obviously a hunger. An interest, a yeah. need, a yeah. desire in that community. A hunger. So, uh you know, it was a huge deal, and I literally just showed up. So after it's all done, they, you know, they come back. They're like, hey, guy, you know, we could really do another one. He's, what do you think? And we set up a pay structure and everything, and I said, fine. And it, it pays for itself. Like, it pays for the room and everything else. Um, so we did another one. And over the course of three years, we've done eight of these, and we always get a 100 or more Latinx pastors, leaders, and young people that show up. This is a younger population, so some of the pastor's wives are pregnant. They bring their kids, right? And uh, what started to happen, so, so this is from you know 2016 to 2018, we did three. The highest number we had, which I sent the link to, we had 162 people. We had our first Catholic family show up. Pioneer Press, which is a, a newspaper in Minnesota, showed up. They interviewed people. They took pictures to write an article. I mean, it just, it just, and... The young people from these churches started being interested in Bethel as a place to go. Hmm. Now, I don't promote Bethel. I'm disinterested in seeming like a salesperson. I, I barely want to be there to do what I'm doing in the sense that I'm do I love teaching, so this is fine, and I'll do it. But I'm not going to be there to recruit, right? Just in it, plus, your credibility you know, goes awash, you know? Um, but they saw someone who looked like them, who spoke like them, who was actually part of the infrastructure. It wasn't in just, their language. In too. their language. And it wasn't like, oh, you were going to bring in a special guest to talk to the little Latinos. Yeah. No, it's like the president comes in, he introduces me, Professor Hernandez, you know. So that means something. So we started to get a trickle of Bethel students from this group. One of them is actually a dreamer. Mm. And we, we almost lost him. Wow. What had happened was uh, his family, I mean, the, the young people, of course, are bilingual, maybe don't even speak Spanish well. The parents, they all speak Spanish. I get a call from administration saying, hey, there's this young person who's interested in Bethel. And, but they were all confused about the story. We think he already has a bachelor's. I don't know what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Turns out, no, it was just a miscommunication. He had gotten accepted at two other colleges in Minnesota, had gotten scholarships for those colleges. He is varsity at high school, good grades, uh, leads worship, plays an instrument at his church. I mean, the, you know, the banner, right? And um, he wanted to come to Bethel. And turns out the reason why he wanted to come, he had been coming for two years with his mom and dad to our conference. I didn't even know it. Because, you know, I just see a hundred plus people. Sure. Hey, One more mundo, blah, blah, blah. You know, I sit with lunch with them, but I, I, even if they told me who their names were, like I'm looking at it, I never met you, right? 
Uh, so he says, uh, I want to come to Bethel, but I've applied for the Dream Act, and this was when Trump had just become president. Mm. So I'm looking at him, and I'm like, Oh Jesus, you will never get that. Like literally in my head. I mean, I'm telling him, Oh yeah, you never know. But in my head, I'm like, Dude, you know, go underground. This looks bad. <laughs> yeah, this is. Darn it, the guy gets it in August enrolls at Bethel in September, so he applies to the FAFSA and all that, has such good grades and all that, he gets uh, nearly a full ride. He only pays $2,000 a year. And this is a school that pays charges $35,000 a year. He's an engineering major hmm. and uh, a music minor, and he's there at Bethel. Right? Cool. So, so this is the kind of thing. So we have people come to Bethel. We had people transfer from other neighborhood schools come to Bethel because their friends started coming to Bethel. And this all leads up to the Greek class. So uh, you know, that's yeah. A, tell me a little bit huge more intro. about this. Yeah. No, no. It, <laughs> tell me a little bit about this uh, program, how it came about. I mean, you've kind of laid out a need, it seems, yeah, in yeah, a, yeah. in the Latino community to get immersed in mm -hmm. the texts of the Bible. Yeah. But here you are giving them now a tool. That's right. That's right. So these conferences that we've had, they're just kind of fellowship get-togethers. We do give them a little certificate, say you took the class, but it's nothing in terms of academic, right? Um, so in 2018 spring, the deans call me to their office, and they are thrilled that this is happening. And this is this is this is this is not this is extracurricular. Absolutely. You know, uh, I'm getting paid to do it, but it's it's nothing related to the school exactly, other than my insistence that it be there, because I wanted them to see the immigrant population, and I wanted the immigrant population to see how the other half lives, right? So they called me up and say, listen. Uh, we love what's going on. You know, we really uh, want to take this to the next level. What would you be interested in doing? It could be anything you want. They basically just gave me carte blanche, carte blanche, carte blanche you name it. We'll figure out how we can make it. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, I don't I kind of know where they're headed with this. And so uh, so, you know, I said, OK, look, I said, I assume that some what you may be interested in is some sort of certificate program, some pastoral certificate program where I teach classes and they get some sort of, and they're like, well, it could be whatever you want. I said, well, that's exactly what I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. I said, this is already a, a second class citizenry. This is an unmoneyed class. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want to do is give them a certificate that says nothing, right? You can't take that with you. You can't go to the store. You can't go to a college. You know, it's just, yeah, you took it. And you know, God bless you. If you take a class, you learn, you get a certificate, great. But in our academic economy, it means nothing. And as an academic, I just, I don't want to do that, right? Um, so, so there was that. And I also said, look, and I know you guys see the Latinos as the future, and this is a potential pipeline. And, and you know, I said, these people are never going to pay your bills. Not these people. The future, perhaps. The kids may one day, mm -hmm. but not this group. So we need to not see them as potential money and not give them, offer them certificates. I said, but I'll tell you what I will do if you're interested. I said, what if we offered them a class that they could actually take for credit, right? And so what I had proposed was, uh, and, and this proposal comes both from a combination of my passions, but also what I had seen in the group because their curiosity gets peaked. I would, I would garnish what I do with Greek. And what were some of those things? Greek. You, yeah, yeah, Greek, yeah. Greek. So like, for example, I'd go through a Pauline Thanksgiving and I'd highlight three Greek words that show up in a Thanksgiving and, and, and draw a thread of how they you know, occur throughout the epistle and they appear to be a theme. And so that Paul's Thanksgivings are not just, hey, God, I'm thankful for this. They're actually an agenda. Here's like an outline. And actually in the case of 1 Corinthians, I told him, I said, it's kind of like Paul fattening up 
and fattening them up for the kill yeah. because he tells them he's grateful that they have knowledge and and word and gifts right so there's three words that are used and there comes the ask and then the, the entire epistle he's smashing those things yeah. right so that's a that's a that's a sarcastic use of prayers i'm pointing this stuff out they can't believe it yeah so they are already peaked in the interest right so i tell deans i said i i'll teach them a greek class and what we'll do i said these are working people 40 plus hours they're pastors they got families they're not 20 year olds spring chicken's going to be coming to class every day i said but We'll do a Monday night, Monday night class, and we'll do it for two years. It'll be one year of Greek spread out over two years. It'll meet all the bells and whistles of regular Greek class, except for the timing, right? And it should be $500, $500 a semester, right? Because a class at Bethel costs you $3,000 easy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it'd be 500 like, well, what, you know. I said, hey, here's the idea. I said, most of these churches will pay some clown to come in and preach, and they'll give them a $500 check and praise God for that, right? Yeah. I said, if that's the case, why can't the church invest $500 in their pastor to come and take this class? He's going to be in the pulpit. She's going to be in the pulpit. Mind you, a third of our students are female pastors in, wow. in the current Greek class. So this is, you know, that makes me even happier. Anyway, so... so uh, What was the reception like? Well, I was stunned. They were thrilled because I had come up with a way to say... Oh, and then... This is how we keep the tuition low, um, because they'll be they'll be a student, but they will not be a, a degree seeking student. They don't fall in the category of major tuition, right now. So I create the class proposal. I have to run it through the deans. I have to run it through the biblical and theological studies department, and also the entire division, and it passes as an actual Bethel class in the catalog that even Bethel students can take. And they just have to be either fully bilingual or be a Spanish major. And it would be up to my discretion, like I'll interview them there. And if if there are regular students who are paying regular tuition, that class is the regular price. But if you are someone who comes in just for the class, you get the $500. The reduced rate. The reduced rate. And um, so that's kind of how it started. Uh, I've gotten uh, uh, emails from people at Baylor and Wheaton who are aware of what we're doing um, and, and also um, North Central, who have called this a model. We are the only CCCU school, Christian thing, um, of the 180 that are doing anything like this Greek and Spanish, biblical Greek. Um, as if that were not enough, right? Um, I also teach at, at several local churches in, in our um, area, and one of them is, is a very traditional, very white church. I teach to 80-year-olds, 70 and 80-year-olds. I've been doing it for like three years. Well, they're very interested in what's happening. So one of them took it upon themselves to, to send a note to the president of our university saying he wanted to start a scholarship fund for the Latinx people that were taking this class. If anybody could not make the $500 mark, that they you know, and he donated $1,000. He just started it, right? And his story was this. He said, my father, when he came from Sweden to Bethel 100 years ago or whatever, didn't know a lick of English, and yet Bethel accommodated and they let him write his thesis in Swedish because this was a school to serve immigrants. Mm. This is the modern day equivalent, and I want to be a part of that. So immigrants blessing yeah. other yeah. immigrants. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, years later, years later. So uh, it worked out, and I. This is how I sell it to the school or to the deans because it's not a money maker. And you know, schools are hemorrhaging funds. They're cutting every. Everything's getting cut. There's no room for new programs. I said, I said to them, you guys 
will pay a marketing specialist, I don't know how many hundreds of thousand dollars to tell you what are the trends, right? Well, look at this, not as a way to make money, but here is a pipeline you are establishing potentially for the future. Mm -hmm. You build a good relationship with this community. You're educating them, you're welcoming them, and their children may end up starting, maybe that will be the money class of the future. Right, not this one, maybe not the next one, but maybe the one after the that. Investment forward. Yeah, so um, that was the story. We started in uh, uh, September, so we're now uh, a little past halfway mark of the semester. So how's it going? It is a blast. It is a blast. Matter of fact, on Facebook, I posted a, a video of them saying the "Our Father" in Greek, oh, and wow. it's fantastic because you hear it with a Spanish accent, <laughs> yes. right? But it's Greek, and they're like "Pater hemon ko en toi so, you know, yeah, it's just yeah, yeah. It's, you know, um, and. Um, uh, I think uh, a third of, uh, I mean, two thirds of the people there are pastors. Uh, and I even have students who, who were legitimate Bethel grads from the, from the Bible program uh, come and want to help. One is a bilingual, bicultural uh, gentleman who is a biblical studies major. He's coming in to help tutor. And another one is actually a white student who has a Spanish church that meets in his church. And, and he helps out as well. So uh, we're doing well. We're learning. It's it's fascinating, the challenges, because in Spanish, for example, it's just one of the challenges. I'll tell you one quick story. You know, you have, you work with um, male and female, you know, f masculine and feminine uh, pronouns and articles and all that. Well, Greek as well. But you have masculine, feminine, and neuter. Yeah. And they think that if you say, um, you know, uh, la casa, it's feminine, right? That it would be feminine in Greek, but no, in Greek it is a masculine word, ha oikos. So they're trying to parse it out, and you know you're supposed to say it's a masculine singular, blah blah blah, and they're like, but it's feminine, la casa. No, yeah. no, no, that's feminine in Spanish. It's not feminine, and you know, so a whole different it's set a of whole issues. Different, yeah, in English you don't have the <laughs> is the whether it's masculine, feminine, or neuter. So here we are, and. Um, uh, it's a good bunch. Uh, they're enthusiastic. They're always posting on Facebook their classes. Uh, our saying in class is Mothane Pothane. Mothane Pothane is Greek for to learn is to suffer. And that's that's how they are, are, are dealing with it. I say that with all my Greek class, but this one in particular because, you know, they're learning study habits. They haven't had to study. And last thing I'll say about this, we had we discovered also there were pastors who were interested who ended up not being able to take it because they did not have their high school diploma or GED. So this is the official Bethel class. You gotta have that at least. And so they either couldn't get it from their country of origin or they never took it. And you know, the while that's a that's a very um, you know painful kind of thing because you want them to, they want to, right? And it's no dig on, on ability. But rather than me saying, well, let's go back and see if we can do it in a way that, they've come to me and said, you know what? I now am going to go get my GED mm -hmm. because this is potentially the first of several classes. And the one of them was a pastor, full-grown man, family, church, everything, telling me I'm going to go back. He told me I just, I just bought some pra practice tests. Mm -hmm. And in the same breath, he's telling me my daughter is taking her ACT tests right now over the weekend, and uh, she wants to come to Bethel. So, you know, he might not be able to take this class, but he is going to better himself. And yet the kids, the new generation... It's an opening, and I'm very, I'm very. Last thing I'll definitely say, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, some of these are immigrants, some are undocumented, and they're there, and they're telling me we want our children here, and I'll say to them, look, the best thing you could do. I mean, your situation is a difficult situation, especially in this toxic climate, but if you if you find a way 
to have your kids do well in high school. And if there's one way we can help you, we'll figure that out too. Have them do really well. And then they can get into a college. And if they get into a college, they may have four years of protection at least. If something happens to you and you get deported, at least they are safe. And I tell them, you know, it doesn't have to be Bethel. You know, it could be anywhere. Mm. You know, and, and ironically, that only makes them more interested. But you bring that twist, which is you need safety and protection. And so that's what we're doing. And, and for me, all of that is about the possibilities afforded by the life of the mind. So they're not just learning Greek to study the Bible and do exegesis and translation. Yes, that's very practical. I want them to think beyond what they have, kind of like I had to learn the hard way to think beyond just the profane and sacred to something more broad. Well, on that note, we want to thank you so much, Juan Hernandez Jr., for joining us. And we wish you continued luck and mate pate. Amen. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.